Welcome to the North Main Podcast, a production of North Main Street Church of God in Butler, Pennsylvania. This podcast brings you North Main's messages every week. We strive to know God intimately, grow in Christ continually, and go for Him daily. I invite you to listen in today as we explore the Bible and learn about its unchanging truths for living life God's way. Let's listen in to this week's message. So how many of you have a hot nose? How many of you have ever had a hot nose before? How many of you have long noses? And I'm not talking about physical long noses, right? We started a couple weeks ago in a theme called patience. We've been going through the fruit of the Spirit every year. We take one of the fruits of the Spirit from Galatians chapter 5, and we've been unpacking that throughout each year. We are now in the year of patience, love, joy, peace, and now 2022 is patience. And as we look at this theme of patience over the course of this next year, we're going to be going through from Genesis all the way to Revelation, looking at evidence of this kind of long of nose experience that we should be having on a regular basis. We should be emulating as believers in Christ this God who was slow to anger or who did not have a hot nose. So when you read those passages in the Old Testament, if you're reading from one of the more traditional versions of Scripture like King James Version or the NASB, a lot of times they will translate, they won't say long of nose or hot nosed, it'll be long suffering, slow to anger, but when you actually translate it over from the Hebrew, it actually means what that video was talking about. So if that comes up later on in the year, I'll describe that a little bit more, but honestly, those are the terms that we will be using throughout the course of this year. Do you have a hot nose? Maybe that's something that could be kind of our our, our, our fun little thing. Christy gets a hot nose with me all the time, and uh, she's one of our pastors on staff here. So thanks a lot, Christy. I'm seeing it now. All right. (laughs) It has been two weeks since I've been up here. Uh, We had Christine Avalone, a guest speaker last week, talking about thriving in a digital world and some of the difficulties and problems with technology in our lives. It's technology in and of itself is not bad. It's what it's used for that can be bad. I mentioned in my class this morning, I'm teaching the thriving class uh, on Sunday mornings at nine o'clock. It started this morning. Isn't it just like the enemy to take something good and just twist it? This is what happened in the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 1 and 2, God creates everything perfect and good. And every day, at the end of every day of creation, God looked and said, it's good, it's good. Or he saw that it was good. And then when he was done, he said, it is very good. And then we see in Genesis chapter 3, which is where we're going to be today, there's this enemy in the form of a serpent that comes and begins to challenge really the goodness of God just by sort of tweaking or changing the conversation just a little bit. And see, this is where the church gets off their footing way too often. Because the world and the secular culture around us that does not believe in or sometimes vehemently rejects the notion of there being a God or Christ or that the Bible is God's word will say, Well, yeah, I believe in truth, but not your version. And they may actually give and articulate a version of truth that sounds very convincing. You're like, okay, well, 
yeah, that sounds good. Why would I have a problem with that, right? But partial truth, though it may sound good, is actually not truth in contrast or comparison to God's truth. A lot of, this is what the enemy does. He takes a portion of truth and then just changes it slightly so that it's not exactly the same way. So it's like, I'll give you a for instance. Let's say I have an original copy of something, all right? A digital print, original copy, this is the very first copy, but then I go copy it, on the, lay it face down on, on the copy machine, and I print it. Is that copy gonna be the same? Yes, but because there may be fuzz or residue or minuscule particles so that I don't see that may show up on here. And, and, the, and the actual image might be slightly off, just by a smidge, but not enough to really make that big of a difference in my own eyes, right? So it's the same way, a famous artist, say Picasso or Da Vinci or Michelangelo, any of those, if you had an original of theirs and then you placed it on the photocopier and you copied one of them, which would be better? The real deal or the photocopy? Which would you rather have? All right. So if we go through life wanting the real deal and striving for the real deal with regard to God's truth, then why would we ever want a facsimile of anything other? And so as we get into the message today, that's what we're going to be looking about, looking at, looking uh, and talking and unpacking in Genesis chapter 3. And yes, I'm back to using the whole chapter of Scripture. I went through withdrawals in December because I was taking a, like a six or seven verse section and breaking it down a verse a week, and that was really hard for me because I'm used to reading whole chapters. So I'm back to whole chapters now, okay? So welcome back. Hey, I want to give you this illustration to get into Genesis chapter 3. And I believe I've used this illustration before, but I think it bears repeating. If you've heard it, just follow along with me. Um, it's said that early Native Americans had this unique practice of, uh, of training their young men. When the young men in these Native American tribes, many of them would come of age, around 12 or 13 years of age, they did this. Then I'm going to read to you. So on the night of the boy's 13th birthday, after learning, hunting, and scouting, and fishing skills, he was put to one final test. It's almost like uh, the final exam for the, for the year. He's placed in this dense forest to spend the entire night alone. Until then, he had never been away from the security of family or the tribe. But on this night, he was blindfolded, blindfolded, mind you, and taken several miles deep into the dark forest. Miles by foot. When he took off the blindfold, he was in the middle of the woods and was terrified. Every time a twig snapped, he visualized this wild animal ready to pounce, and after what seemed like an eternity, dawn would break the next day, and the first rays of sunlight would enter into that deep, dark forest. Looking around, the boy saw flowers and trees and the outline of the path which led him to this place, even though blindfolded. 
Then to his utter astonishment, he beheld the figure of a man standing just a few feet away, armed with a bow and arrow. It was his father. He'd been there the whole night. See, when I think about God's protection, in all reality, this seems a fitting illustration for me. We don't realize how close God actually is to us in the midst of what we feel like is utter aloneness. Have you, how many of you remember the, the footsteps in the sand, the footprints in the sand, right? And you see two sets of footprints and then the single set again. And you're like, God, why did you leave me during the most difficult time of my life? And as the story or the poem goes, God responds, it was then that I was holding you and carrying you. So the set of footprints that you saw were God's. But do we realize God's carrying us through some of the darkest moments of light in the, in the midst or the heat of the moment? Rarely do we know that or feel that or experience that until hindsight we look back and realize, God, you were there the whole time. That's where our security as believers in Christ comes from. A couple of weeks ago, we started this new year with patience. And I want to go to Genesis chapter 3. And I want to look at where everything went wrong. But not only do I want to look at where everything went wrong, I want to look at God's perspective on the issue. Because oftentimes I think we tend to overlook in the midst of the fall of humankind into the darkness of sin and death by disobeying God's one command not to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, we miss God in the midst of that. You know what we see in that picture? A lot of times we see God doling out punishments. All right, because you did this, this is what's going to happen. And because you did this, this is going to happen. And because you did this, this is going to happen. That's often what we see. But if you pull the blinders off, I want you to look at a different perspective of God today in Genesis 3. So let's start reading. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. And so it'll sound a little bit different if you have a different version, but follow along with me if you will. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. Now, shrewd doesn't mean crude. It just means wise, crafty. It means they are able to sneak in and sneak out of situations in some regards. So it was the shrewdest, the wisest of all the animals that the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat of the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Okay, what's the truth? God said, do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat it, you will die. That's what he said, okay? But now look at what the enemy does. Look what the serpent does. Did God say? Now he's not saying, God didn't say this. What's he saying? Did God say that you must not eat of any of the fruits of the tree. Is that what God said? Of course not. So he, he, this is how the enemy works. He starts to get you to doubt and question whether or not God's word is true. Okay? Now, I'm not asking you, and you'll never hear me ask you from this stage, to just blindly accept what the word of God tells you. And that may sound weird coming from a pastor. What I will tell you to do is test it. Look at it. Study it. Unpack it. Put it under a microscope. Really dig into it. 
Because I have enough faith and belief that when you do that and you're truly, sincerely seeking the truth, God will show himself. Genesis, or, thank you, Jer- Jeremiah 29, 13. Christina said this last week. God says, you will seek me and find me when you do what? Seek me with your whole heart. And so I'm of, the, I'm of the belief that if you truly and sincerely dig in to the word and you just tear it apart, not physically, but mentally and emotionally and intellectually, you'll see the truth staring you right back in the face. So the serpent is there. Did God say if you eat of any of the fruit trees that you'll die? Well, what is Eve's response? Actually, she's not Eve at this point. She's just known as the woman. The man is known as the, the man, and the woman is known as the woman. Adam means human or man, technically. And Eve, which will come later, will mean something different. We're going to talk about that. She says, of course we may eat from the fruit trees of the garden. She knows what God said. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. So this tree was in the middle of the garden. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it or you'll die. And then what's the response of the serpent? Oh, you won't die. You're not going to die, the serpent replied. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it. And you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. Now, there's some truth in that statement, okay? Which we'll talk about in a little bit. The serpent's saying, your eyes will be opened. Of course their eyes will be opened, and we'll find out in a minute how they were opened, and they were ashamed. So the woman was convinced after this conversation. I mean, if you had never known what a lie was or a deception was, if you'd never known if you didn't even know what the definition of a lie was how would you conceive of what this serpent was saying right so no the god didn't say that we couldn't eat of any of the trees just this one well that one you can eat you're not gonna die well i've never been lied to before so i mean Okay, I mean, yeah, it does look good. I mean, I'm, con- I'm kind of convinced. So she's in a quandary. And here she goes. She's convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful. Its fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. And then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And then, as the serpent said, at that moment, what's it say? Their eyes were opened, and suddenly they felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. The sad reality is some of us, and I'm just so, total side note here, are caught in the midst and in the depth of sin right now, but we don't realize we're standing naked. Okay, do you understand what I'm saying? We're living proudly and boldly embracing sin and we've convinced ourselves through any number of justifications that it's okay but we're walking around naked 
and unashamed. Sounds like a TV show. And naked and afraid, I don't know. Don't watch it. I'm not advocating that, all right? But we're walking around naked and unashamed when we should be because we don't live in the perfectness of the garden without sin. Instead, we're sinful creatures. They had at least enough mindset about them to realize, oh, no. We've done something wrong. And now we feel vulnerable. And they realize in the perfectness of the garden, after having done what they were told not to do, their eyes are completely open to the reality of good and bad, evil and righteousness. And standing in the midst of the contrast of that, their only response is to cover themselves. Have you ever felt that way? So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. And when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about the garden. I remember as a kid, when I would do something I was told not to do, or when I would uh, get into something that I was questioning whether or not it was a good idea to do or not, I wouldn't do it out in the open. Guess where I would go? to a place where nobody would see or know what I was doing. I was a little pyro as a kid. <laughs> and my mom's probably watching or will be watching later, and she can like, yeah, he almost burned our house down. I found Christmas candles one year, and I was probably, I don't know, seven or eight years old, and I'm like, oh, these are cool. And so I'm like, I knew better than to light them in the living room around my mom because I wasn't to play with fire. So I took the matches or lighter. My mom and dad were smokers of that day. Yes, it was for medicinal purposes. So I went into my bedroom. Just kidding. That's a joke. Went into my bedroom with the lighter. Didn't have the safety stuff on them when I was a kid. And I lit this candle, I'm like, ooh, flame, fire. I felt like, you know, like one of those cavemen who actually experienced fire for the first time until the hot wax dripped on my hand. And what's my initial response as a seven, eight-year-old kid? I'm like, ah! And I dropped it on carpet, which at that time was not flame retardant. They didn't have flame retardant carpet when I was a kid. And so my bedroom floor caught on fire. And I'm sitting there panicking at this moment, what am I to do? As the circle keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger, I finally said, well, it's probably better to get in trouble than to let the house burn down in my seven-year-old mind. So I ran and told mom, my carpet's on fire. And then she comes, puts a towel over it, snuffs it out, and we're in good shape. But that reminder until we moved from that house was always there. This black, hardened, rough, charred spot on the carpet. Why is it when we do things we know we shouldn't do, we go into hiding? Why is it when we hear the footsteps of a parent coming down the hallway, we put away what we shouldn't have been into? Why do we go around sneaking things in secret rather than living the truth on a daily basis? Well, when the cool evening breezes are blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking through the garden. So what did they do? They hid from the Lord God among the trees. I think this is funny. 
Have you ever tried to hide from God? Right? I, I mean, <laughs> how ludicrous is that? I mean, if God is all-knowing and, you know, all of that, he, he knows where we are. All right? Um, sure, we try to hide from God. We, we can psych ourselves up psychologically to believe we're hiding from God. But what does the psalmist tell us? Psalm 139. If I make my bed in the heights, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, even hell, you're there. Where can I go from your presence? The psalmist begs the question. But Adam and Eve, they hid. And then the Lord God called the man. Where are you? As any good parent would do who knows where their kid is when they're hiding. Where are you? Because he wants them to own up, to take responsibility. Then Adam replies, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. <laughs> Who told you you were naked? The Lord asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, well, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Oh, my gosh. It's not my fault. And then the Lord asked the woman. Instead of dealing with the casting of blame, he asked the woman, okay, what have you done? And she says, well, the serpent deceived me. That's why I ate it. It's not my fault. And then the Lord said to the serpent, getting to the root of the issue, right? Because you've done this, you're cursed more than any of the animals, domestic and wild. You'll crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. And I'll cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He'll strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now that seems out of place because we know that the woman who would become Eve didn't go over and stomp on the serpent's head right in that moment. What does that mean? We'll unpack that in a moment. And then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth until medication allows you to be numb from the pain, <laughs> which is, woohoo! Actually, I wouldn't know. I've never given birth, except to a kidney stone. Those are fun. All right, side note, tar, so sorry about that. I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth. And listen to this. This this has been used to lord over women since the fall. And I, I, you may be here, we fully allow women into positions of leadership and ministry unabashedly and unapologetically. No, we are not left-wing nutcases, okay, if that's what you, we believe that God can imbue upon both genders, and yes, two, we believe there are two genders, male and female, the full gifts of the Spirit of God. And I have, I could teach a class on this. There are legitimate, deeply rooted biblical reasoning for this. It's not just our opinion. But here, this verse has been used as an abuse in the church to keep women from ministering alongside of men. And you will desire to control your husband 
but he will rule over you. Now, I want you to understand what's happening here. God is not, God is not making these curses happen. He's telling them that as a result of what you've done, this will be the consequence. And it's not a consequence because I'm putting it on you. I'm just telling you for a fact, this is what's going to happen. Like when you have unprotected sex with any random number of people, which we believe is unbiblical, by the way, the consequence could be an STI or an STD, which is a sexually transmitted infection or disease, or could be pregnancy. So I'm just telling you the truth of what the consequence would be if you do this thing. Now God is saying, listen, he does say, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy. Well, that's mean. And in pain you'll give birth. But he said, and you will desire the control, to control your husband and he'll rule over you. And then what's he say to the man? He saves the best for last, right? And it's no less bad. Since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. It's not because he listened to a woman. It's rather he listened to the woman who listened to the serpent and who of all people knew better? He was the one that was spoken to directly by God, don't eat this, before Eve was even created. The ground will be cursed because of you. All your life you'll struggle to scratch a living from it. Do you ever feel that way sometimes? No matter what job you're in. It will grow thorns and thistles for you. Though you'll eat of its grains, wait a minute, pause right there. I thought this was interesting. Before the fall, what was the only group of creatures that ate grains? The animals. Humans were to only eat from the fruits of the tree in the garden. There was no, you've heard me say this before, this is, my, this is not my advocation for veganism or vegetarianism, but there was no food chain both groups, animals and humans, ate plants. Humans ate the fruits of the tree of the garden, and the animals ate the grains of the field, and now we see a shift. I just thought that was interesting. There's no real theological thing there, but I just thought you should hear that, right? It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains, and by the sweat of your brow will you have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and it's to dust you'll return. Now listen to what Adam's response is. The man Adam named his wife Eve because she would be the, uh, the mother of all who live. And the Lord God made clothing from animal skins for Adam and his wife. And then the Lord God said, look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. Oh, that's a side note. I'll get back to that. And then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the Garden of Eden. He sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. And after sending them out of the garden, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. And he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. Here's the key point real quick this morning. It's this. God's protection shows his patience toward us even when we're in the wrong. 
How is God protecting them at all in here? Sounds more like a punishment to me. Well, let's unpack this. The first point is this. Death was not immediate. When you eat this, you will die, God says. Did Adam and Eve die right away? They set in motion the processes of death and degradation, but they did not immediately drop dead when they took a bite of the fruit. It was not poisoned fruit in the way we would think of it today that gives immediate death. Adam would live to be 930 years old. We say that's where fiction makes the story. But there are a lot of faith-filled scientists that believe that disease hadn't entered the world the way it has in our day and age. What is the nature of a virus? Oh, here's a perfect time to talk about this. What's the nature of a virus? What does it do? A new virus comes onto the scene and it mutates. How many different strains have we had of just the COVID-19 virus at this point? How many new viruses have actually come onto the human stage in all the years of human existence? Now think all the way back to the perfectness of the garden. Disease was not created. Disease is a result of the breakdown of the human body and death and the human, in all of creation Death enters into the scene and begins to mutate what is good in God's creation. What, what are cancer cells? They're mutations of good cells, right? Viruses, similar. All of these things now start to find existence into God's perfect creation because death has entered the scene and began to degrade even the cellular matter of people's bodies. So is it inconceivable that before all of disease ever entered the world, that maybe, just maybe, being as so close to perfection as they were before the fall, that there was still a hint of that longevity, if you will. Now, 930 years is not eternity. We may think it's so, but still on the grand scheme of eternity, 930 years is a blip on the radar. You see, God's desire was and has always been that humans would know him and dwell with him in an intimate relationship grounded in faith and trust. However, when the first humans disobeyed God, they did so out of a lack of faith and trust in him. And that's where this begins to break down. Do I believe what God says or do I believe what the enemy says? Do I believe what God says or not? And this is the choice. God will not force you to believe what he says. The world will force you to believe what it says, even by the barrel of a gun if it needs to. Do you catch what I'm saying? In God's economy and in God's kingdom, God gives you the choice to choose or to reject him. Now, there are consequences, as we already related to you, in the punishments that were given out. But the opposite of the consequence was a benefit if they did not give in to eating this fruit they would have lived forever in the perfectness of the garden death wasn't immediate I find it also interesting here that as an act of God's grace not only does, does death not happen instantaneously I see that as honestly God's grace in the midst of this, death did come. It did happen, but he gave them time. That's the mercy and the grace of God. But secondly, 
You see, Adam noticing this, I believe, and I, I, here's my argument for this. I find it interesting that he named his wife Eve. Eve means to give life, or it can mean life, okay, in the Hebrew. So man, if you want, the Hebrew word for Adam is ish, I-S-H. Guess what woman was called? Ish, ish. <laughs> okay? Ish and ish, ish were together in the garden. It was perfect and great. And now the fall has happened. Adam maintains his ish, but Eve has Eve changed. Or, or excuse me, ish, ish is changed to Eve. And, and it's not like, it's not like a definition, royal screw up. You know, that's not what it means. It means life. Do you see what Adam is doing? I think this is so cool. In the midst of punishment and death, what does he name Eve right after all the punishments are doled out and all the consequences are coming to fruition? He names her life because he has hope. When everything seems so royally messed up, there is still cause for hope because God is good even, even when he does discipline those he loves. Do you know what else we learn about this? That one phrase I mentioned, what is the serpent? What's he tell the serpent? See, you, your offspring and her offspring are going to be at war with each other. But eventually, basically, is what it's saying. Her offspring is going to crush your head. Oh, yeah, you'll strike his heel, but he'll crush your head. So which one is more damaging, the crushing of a head or the striking of a heel? <laughs> just, just logically think through this with me. Yeah, if you had your head crushed, kind of a hopeless cause. Now, all right, poisonous snake strikes your heel, not great. But at least there's a chance of survival beyond crushing your head. And we know if you follow the theme all the way through, the Messiah comes onto the scene. We know him as Jesus. And yes, the enemy struck his heel in what seemed like a final death blow. But the woman who was named life becomes the ancestor to the true life giver we know as Christ. We just celebrated his birth, remember? And it's through him that life comes to the world. See, he became sin who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. It's through him that all of the curses in the Old Testament are rectified. This is why Paul can say in, in Galatians, I mentioned this earlier, there is neither Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Do you see he broke the curse of hierarchy? Because in the garden, they were co-equals working together. And I'm not trying to belabor the gender thing, but I'm just showing you an example of what was broken and those curses that were broken. When you believe in Christ, it sets the record back. Now, we still have to live in a world of sin and death, but we contend against it as those who have life through Christ Jesus. 
Death no longer has a sting on us, nor does it have victory over our lives if we are in Christ Jesus. Second thing I noticed, you know what God did? Before he kicked them out of the garden, what does he do for them? He gives them a whole wardrobe of fig leaves, right? They, they only last as long as they're green. What happens to leaves when they get brown? They fall apart. You can't fold those things up, right? What does he give them? Whew. Where is the first death in all of creation? Where did he get those animal skins? He, tw- he wrinkled his nose and boink, there were animal skins, right? No, there was a sacrifice. And the sacrifice that was made was on behalf of Adam and Eve. And in spite of what they had done, because he's now sending them out into these harsh elements where he's already told the man, through thistles and thorns, you're going to work the ground barely to make a living and to get something to eat. Animal hide and leather is very tough and durable. And that's why it's so expensive, right? It's very durable, and he sends them out with these animal skins on as protection from the elements. Why would a God who now is just royally peeved off at them do anything for them? Hmm? Because he loves them. You're right. He loves them. He gives them something they don't deserve. Protection from the elements. Biblical scholar and author Alan Ross, listen to what he writes. God is a saving God. And the fact that he clothed Adam and Eve testifies to that. An animal was sacrificed to provide garments of skin and later to all Israel's animal sacrifices so that they would be a part of God's provision to remedy the curse a life for a life. This is when we see Moses comes on, or we see even through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, animal sacrifices happening. But it doesn't become a part of the religious structure until Moses comes onto the scene and we see the book of Leviticus being written, which is, is the Levitical law, where sacrifice is made official as a part of the Hebrew uh, and Israelite religion. And that animal sacrifice would be a substitution for the sin of the individual or the families that it was being sacrificed for. We think that's crude and and strange and weird, and rightly so, because we don't function that way anymore. But thank God we don't function that way anymore, because Christ comes onto the scene, and instead of being an animal, he Emmanuel, God with us, dies as the final and ultimate sacrifice. So there now is no other need for a life for a life because he gave his life that we might have everlasting life when we believe in him. The last thing is there was no remittance into the Garden of Eden. This seems like a punishment. But what was God's reasoning? Do you remember? I don't want them back in here. They're going to mess things up again. Don't you step foot in here with your shoes on, right? I mean, think of any number of things, right? Why was God not letting them back into the garden? It was for their protection. He was so serious, in fact, 
They were now living in a fallen state. Sin had entered their lives, entered the world. They were living under the curse of sin and death. And God says, they have now become like us, knowing good and evil. Think back to Genesis 1, 26, 27. And God said, let us create humans in our own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's a lot of debate among scholars as to who the us is. Is God uh, schizophrenic? Multiple personality? No, but we do know God is triune, Father, Son, and Spirit. Hmm? Three in one. There are scholars that say that in the unity of his oneness, his Father, Son, and Spirit, he says, let us make man in our own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. And there are some scholars that believe the angelic host in this divine presence of the council of heaven. Regardless, God creates us this way with this image, this imprint of the divine on our lives. We are his representatives in this world. And now he says in Genesis 3, they have become like us, knowing both good and evil. It's not that they weren't like him to begin with, because God said, let us create them in our own image. So they were in his very image in the garden. But the one thing they didn't have was the knowledge of evil. Truly, they didn't have a knowledge of good, if we're being honest, because that's a contrasting principle, isn't it? If you'd never known evil, how would you know what good is? Good was just the present reality that they were living in, ignorant of anything else. And so now there's no remittance back into the garden after their eyes have been opened to good and evil. Why? Because in the garden was another tree. What was it called? The tree of life. It was one of the many fruit-bearing trees in the garden, along with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But what does God say? Here's what happens. If they eat this, they will live forever. If they eat the tree of the knowledge, or if they eat the tree of life, they will live forever. Would it be fun to live forever in a broken and fallen world? I mean, you even see some of these fictional, or fictional, fictitious movies and TV shows where these people live forever, and then once they get like a thousand years old, they're like begging for death. Why? Because it's bad, right? Now, I don't wish for death. Please understand me. I love living life as a believer in Christ, but I'm not afraid of death because I know whom I have believed in, right? Here's the thing. The re no remittance under the garden was to protect them. There had to be an end to sin and death in their lives. That's mercy. That's grace. In Corey Ten Boom's book, The Hiding Place, and I've quoted her often in here, Corey Ten Boom was uh, a Dutch lady from Holland who, during the midst of World War II, uh, worked with her father in his watchmaking shop there in Holland, but they became kind of an underground railroad, if you will, for the Jewish people 
during World War II who were being just exterminated, helped hundreds of people by, by helping them out of the country. In the book, The Hiding Place, she recalls her persecution because she eventually gets arrested because there's a, uh, somebody down the street who was a family friend back in the day who kind of narked on them and, and sold them out. And so Corey and her sister and her whole family are thrown into concentration camps. At Ravensbrück, which was known as the worst German concentration camp during World War II, one of the worst, I should say, when, when Corey was, and her sister Betsy found themselves imprisoned there, they were disgusted to discover that their bar- in their barracks that it was infested by fleas. Have you, ever, have you ever been bitten by a flea? Okay, uh, you, it, it, they're, they're not fun. I mean, it's just, it's torturous. You get them, it's like you're scratching and itching. Listen to her story in the hiding place. She says, it says, when Corey began to complain, Betsy insisted that they instead give thanks to God. Have you ever given thanks to God for irritations? Quoting 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 18, and everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. Do you give thanks in everything? Even in the bad, it says not, not just in the good things, but in the bad things. With some persecution, excuse me, excuse me, no, no not persecution, with some persuasion, Corey finally joined her sister and thanking God for the fleas. And I'm sure it was reluctant at first. Thank you, God, for the fleas. You know, until you, you start, thank you, God, for the fleas. Okay, okay. And you keep going, you keep going. Several months later, she writes, the two sisters expressed their surprise that the camp guards had never come back to their barracks to disrupt or prevent the evening Bible studies that they had held for months with the fellow prisoners there. It was then that Corey realized that the very fleas which she had, she had so despised had actually been God-sent protection from the cruel guards. God's protection comes in so many different ways in our lives. We, what we consider as a curse may actually be a blessing of God in disguise. What we consider a flaming sword preventing us from getting to the tree of life may be protection for our own good. What we may see as kicked out into the harsh elements of life as evil and bad because God is mean but he provides a way in the wilderness for us, doesn't he? And protection from the elements. God's protection and patience toward Adam and Eve speaks volumes about his true character and nature. The God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament through Christ Jesus. There's not a wrathful God in the Old Testament and a good, loving, forgiving God in the New Testament. He is the one, one and the same. And if you have eyes to see you can see that loving God through creation in the Old Testament. As you unpack the Word of God this year, as you read through, I want you to see evidence of God's long nose. I want you to see evidence of his slow-to-anger moments. And as I mentioned in a prayer uh, time that we had a couple weeks ago, I want you to realize that sometimes there are decades, if not centuries, between verses. And what you may read as a back-to-back instance 
Maybe God's long-suffering, slow-to-anger moment where it looks like he's patient here, but then whacks him out of existence in the next sentence. Do you realize how much time passes between verses? A lot. The Apostle Paul, again, writes this letter to, to his church as New Testament and Christians, as believers in Christ. He gives us this encouragement. I want to leave you with this this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16 through 18. This is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and they won't last forever or very long according to this translation. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So, you see, we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on the things we cannot see. For the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. He's talking about Christ. He's talking about God. He's talking about faith. He's talking about hope beyond the misery in which we live. How sorrowful would it be if this is all we have to look for the world in which we live now. And I want you to remember this. God's protection shows his patience toward us, even when we're in the wrong. He is long-suffering. He is slow to anger. He is not quick to judgment, though he can, and he has every right to be. Do you understand? Okay. Okay. I don't know where you are today as our worship team comes forward. And we always do an altar call. It feels like a habit now, but it's a good habit to have. There are habits that are good and there are habits that are bad. Yes? And so I don't know if you're struggling with patience. Maybe you're hot-nosed a lot, right? Maybe, maybe you find yourself with a short wick and, and you are just easily set off by any number of things. Maybe it's time to get rid of some of that anger, to set it aside, and to live in the peace and the presence and the patience of God. Maybe you find yourself looking at the world around you thinking it's hopeless, and I find myself doing that as well at times. And maybe it's not just the immediate world around your current situation, but the vast national expression of chaos that's going on right now or even the worldly chaos that's going on. And you think, Lord, (laughs) where are you? If you're real, show up. And in our impatience, we can inadvertently begin to curse God if we're not careful. Where are you putting your trust? Where are you putting your hope? And where is your patience rooted? If you need prayer this morning to overcome this weight that you're carrying that's causing you to be irritable all the time, please come and pray. Somebody will pray with you to my right, your left. And again, if you want to reconcile with God about these things on your own, you come to my left, your right. Nobody's going to bother you down here. But let this year start off with patience in your life. This is going to be a tough year. I've always been told, even as a young kid, don't, this is one thing you don't pray for. We don't pray for patience. Why? 
because patience is tested. Your patience is, in order for patience to grow stronger, it has to come under difficulty. So I'm not saying it's going to be an easy year, but I pray that you'll understand and learn to produce this fruit called patience. Heavenly Father, in this place, we look to you. I mean, how, how, how have you been so patient with us, humanity, throughout the course of human history? Boggles the mind. I mean, when we truly pull the blinders off and we look with eyes that are open at your word, we see evidence of a God who is slow to anger, abounding in love. Remind us that you've come through your son Jesus Christ to bring us life and to bring, us, bring it to us abundantly and, and that it's the enemy who seeks to steal, kill, and destroy. And it's in him where our patient wanes. It's not in you. If we're rooted in you, we can weather any storm that comes our way. Help us to follow in your footsteps. And when all that we can see is just the next step in front of us, help us to be obedient to take it. Forgive us of our sins, our shortcomings. When our noses get hot, Thank you for evidence of grace and mercy and patience in the scripture that we can lean on as promises of who you are. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for joining us this week. Check back next week as we dig deeper and go further in our understanding of God's word. Make sure to visit us on our website, www.northmaincog.org, where you can learn more about us. If you found value in today's message, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes, or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be helpful too. Donating to the ongoing ministry of North Maine is easy. Just go to our website and click on the Give tab at the top of the screen. Thanks for listening. We look forward to you joining us again next week.